Good morning, all. I would love to just stop and pray if I could, if I don't trip over these cables, which I might. Um, I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. And God, we just thank you that we can, we can just rest on your promises. Lord, just believing that, that you're going to move again, that you're going to do it again, that you're good and that you're sufficient and that your ways are right and pure. And Lord, we can trust in you above all things. And Lord Jesus, as we are just entering into this new series, allow us, Lord, just to to see things with new eyes and fresh ears. Let us hear them. And Lord, I pray that we would just humble ourselves before you, that in this moment we will surrender our, our, our right to be right. And we'll just be open before you. And we pray that in the name of Jesus. Well, we're in a brand new series called The Liturgies of Life, which you know, if you've been around DBC, we've been talking about this. And a liturgy, I'll just make this really easy because that seems like a really big church word. Um, A liturgy is really a habit. And kind of the bottom line, the the phrase for this whole series that you see on the screen right now is ultimately it's this. A liturgy of life is an arena. So those are situations. Maybe it's it's in the middle of, of tension points in your life. Maybe it's in the middle of some relational struggle. Maybe it's in the time of celebration and really just kind of capitalizing on this time of Christmas. It's, these are arenas where God uh, re calibrates our hearts to bring our hearts back to him also it reforms our desires we're going to see that maybe some of our desires aren't the best desires maybe some of our desires are just rooted in us and not in God's best for us so we would I would want you to know the difference so we're going to talk about that and also the it it rehabituates our loves I had to practice that word I love words, and that's a tough one. I had to practice that word, just be honest with you. Um, rehabituates, you can say that later in your own time if you want. Um, it rehabituates our loves to, to his best life for us. And I really would love it if you would write that down. That way you can kind of have something bedrock so you know what this whole series, even as it, it concludes on Christmas Eve, so you would know exactly what the point of this series is because I know this about you and just as I know this about me. We have things in our life, we have habits in our life, and our habits lead us to the things that we love. As a matter of fact, the things that we love, we create habits and we, we have relationships relationships centered around our desires and the things that we love. So as we're wrestling with not only with with what you see on the screen, I want you to also wrestle with this. And if you have a pen, write this down. I want you to really, this to be the, the thing that's on your mind throughout this whole series. And I believe if you would get this kind of answered in in the most healthy, gospel-centered, Christ-honoring way, ultimately your life will be better, your relationships will be better, your financial situation can be better, much of your life can be better if you would answer this question correctly. But I want you to, to begin answering it honestly. And this is the question. What does my vision, what does my vision for the good life look like? So it's not going to be on the screen. But what does my vision for the good life look like? What does my vision for the good life look like? Because what I know about you, and it's true of all people, our, our vision of the good life is the very thing that we're going to pursue. 
For some people, they're going to pursue uh, building up that 401k so they can retire early and then golf or do whatever you're going to do with that. And some of you, your, your version of the good life is to have as many kids as possible to just pack them in. And you know, Thanksgiving, just the more, the merrier. And you got to build an addition because you have to have a new room and you got grandbabies coming over and you've got all this. Some of you are shaking your head and you're like, that is not my version of the good life. But some of you, it is. And it's like, the more, the merrier, bring them over. And some of you are like, I can't stand Thanksgiving. I just just want to stay home and, and I'll just, I'll like FaceTime the crowd or something and then I'll just shut down. I mean, I know some of us, that's, that's our reality. And yet, if, if your version of the good life is not the best life for you, I would want you to know. If your version of the good life is not the best life for you, I would want you to know and I would want you to know up front. So, I'll tell you a story and then I'm going to connect the story to what I just said. Earlier this year, if you're at DBC, you know this, and many of you actually helped financially for us to go there, and you helped by praying for Austin and I when we went to the Dominican Republic. Well, when we went to the DR, it was kind of a fascinating thing. We really enjoyed it. And he was in, in the Bates, and I was doing medical missions. Don't worry, I wasn't touching anyone, okay? So um, you, don't want me doing, you don't want me doing any doctoring. I'm not even sure that's a term, which implies that I probably shouldn't be doing it, if it is. Like, I was there, I was there as a chaplain just as in, to encourage people, share the gospel, and pass out Bibles. And yet, Austin was in the Bates. I had the opportunity for one day to go to basically do some vacation Bible school work in a Bates. Catch up on what a batay is in the Dominican Republic. A batay in the Dominican is really an agricultural village. So instead of batay, you could just replace that with agricultural village. And predominantly, these agricultural villages are the people who live in these agricultural villages or the batay are Haitians. Now they they are there illegally because they couldn't. There's no job available for them in Haiti. No job that would certainly pay what they could get paid and to provide for their family. So they would cross the border because Haiti and the Dominican share the same island. They cross the border illegally and they would wind up in these bates, which were largely Haitian communities. Now there's a phrase that's common around uh, the missionaries and common around people who are doing inland mission into those areas, and it's this phrase: uh, you will be born on the batay, you'll work on the batay, and you'll die on the batay. And a batay, honestly, some batays are, they probably take up the actual living space of all these, of all of, of these particular villages. I'd say the average uh, range of, of area or acreage that it would cover is about 20 acres. So there would be just lined up either huts or, or government buildings on the batay. And that would be their life. And yet now, when a missionary goes to the Batay and they share Jesus, we're wanting to tell them about the gospel message, believing that the gospel message in some way can impact their life, that they can have the best life that God offers them in the Batay. Now think about that for a moment. Contrast life on the Batay, where maybe there's a single mother, which we saw a bunch, a single mother with a bunch of children, and imagine that now a missionary goes in to share Jesus with her and say, I want to tell you about Jesus' best life for you, and then contrast that with the best life that you think that you want. I want you to compare that because in that comparison, if, if the woman who lives in the Bate, who's the single mom, who has three kids and who lives in a tin hut in the Bate, if she can't live the best life that Jesus has for her, and yet we think the best life for us is the life we're currently living, if those two things aren't lined up, 
I would want you to know that there's a breakdown in your belief. Because if the gospel promises the good life for a woman who's in the bate, who's a single mom raising three kids in the bate, and if it's the good life for her, then it should be the same good life for us. And yet we can become so entangled into, into an American Christianity of we think the good life is as long as God gives me what I want, as long as I'm happy, as long as my wife is happy and my kids are happy and my husband's happy, as long as my grandkids are happy, as long as I have a house, as long as I have food, as long as I have a job, as long as I have a 401k, as long as I have a pension plan, as long as I can take as many vacations as I want, as long as I have a lake house, as long as I have a new four-wheeler, as long as I have a new truck, as long as I have a new house when I want to upscale, when I invite everybody over for Thanksgiving, I want to have a new house next year for Thanksgiving so everybody will fit. If that version of the good life is not consistent with a woman who is single in but in a single mom in a batay, the good life that you've just prescribed to is not Jesus's good life. It's just yours. And I just want you to know that if we put up this, this idea of what the good life is with an American tainted, Southern tainted, Bible belt tainted version of the good life, if we put that as, as our our ultimate love, we're going to be very disappointed. So this whole series is about taking what we think is the vision of the good life and reforming it, recalibrating it, and rehabituating a life that Jesus offers for us, believing that it's better than what we currently have. Amen? That's what this series is about. That was almost a sermon, um, but I'm going to keep going if that's okay with you. Um, all right, so we're going to be in Luke 1. We're actually going to start in verse 5. We're going to be there in just a couple moments. I want you to really have the bottom line for this. If you're a note taker, as many of you are, I want you to just have the bottom line for this particular talk, and you're going to hear this woven throughout my words. The Lord is the light in the darkness and the shield to extinguish the fiery darts of doubt. Doubt. You see, in our life, there's many circumstances that help form our doubts. Sometimes the doubt comes after the death of a dream where we think, well, this is what, this is what my life is going to be like. I, once I retire, I'm going to spend the rest of my retirement doing this. And yet maybe you get a, a health scare. Maybe you get a diagnosis that blows up that dream. And now it's the death of a dream. Maybe now you realize, wow, I'm not going to be able to go around the world like I thought that I would. What am I going to do now? So we start to have doubts when it comes to death of a dream. We start to have doubts even after a diagnosis to think maybe, maybe we're trusting upon our own life and our own vitality and our own strength. And, and if you're young, this is what you do. When you're old, you know you can't do this because your body starts to break down. But when you're young, we think, man, we're just so full of just spirit and energy and passion. We can just go out and chase the world. But the older you get, the more the reality hits and the more... Um, that you go on in life, maybe you get a diagnosis and that diagnosis puts your life at halt and you say, man, my version of the good life is, is not right anymore and yet it could plant a seed of doubt. And maybe it's there for a reason. 
Even after some normal daily experiences, maybe daily practices and experiences, maybe it's just you become doubtful because church just becomes mundane for you. You're just like, I just come to church, I sit, I sing songs, I'm emotionally drawn to the songs, I love the songs, the word is preached, it's great, and I leave, and I go live my life Monday through Saturday, and then I come back in, and I come in, and there's this cool video that comes up, and then I come in, I sing these songs to Jesus, and I feel really good, and I hear a message, and then maybe we sing another song, and I feel really good, and I leave, and it's rinse and repeat. And in those moments, life can become so mundane that we start to doubt the power of God because we've limited God. Some of us, we have just destructive patterns. Some of us, you've started to doubt if you'll ever be healthy again because you've had destructive patterns, maybe of overeating. You've had destructive patterns of of maybe putting a substance into your body. Maybe you've had destructive patterns to where you've had some inappropriate relationships for years and years and years. And you don't, you're doubting if God could ever come through for you. You're doubting if you'll ever be right again. You just have this seed of doubt that's just casting a shadow over your whole life. And now you're consumed thinking there's no way out. But I want to tell you there is a way out. You see, doubt... Doubts that seem like lies are Satan's schemes in disguise. I know it rhymes. I didn't mean for it to. You can say it later and make fun of me. That's fine. I don't care. But doubts that seem like lies are Satan's schemes in disguise. So, so when you have a doubt and you're like, I'm never going to get out of this situation. My marriage is never going to be well. I'm never going to be financially stable. I, I'm never going to be able to live this good life that Jesus promised me. My kids are never going to be straight. My marriage is always going to be jacked up. Those are always, when, when you hear those things, those are lies and those are Satan's schemes in disguise. And the reason why it's a disguise is because when Satan speaks, it sounds a lot like us. Because it's our words. Isn't it, your, isn't it your voice that you hear when you talk to yourself? If it's not, we might need to have some counseling, but it probably is, right? See, for you, in me, it's like when, when, when Satan tries to whisper lies to us, it sounds like our voice. And we know our past. We know the destruction that we brought onto ourselves. We know what we did to our first marriage. We know what happened in those situations. You see, we can start doubting in these moments. And here's the thing about doubt. If you doubt something, if you doubt something, you're not going to go to them for advice. For instance, if, if you had, um, may, maybe you had some foot issues, you're not going to go to a cosmetologist, Right? So like if you have like some major foot issues and you're like hobbling along, you're not going to go to a beautician, cosmetologist, whatever the term is that you currently use. Because they do hair and nails and stuff. I don't know what they do. But they, I know what they don't do. They don't, they don't work on feet. Like for you, if, if you're going blind in one eye, you're not going to go to a heart surgeon, are you? They're like, I don't know. Tell me about my heart, doc. My eye really hurts. I mean, you're not going to do that. Because in that, you want to go to an expert in the field. And what you do is you're going to go to the expert in the field and get the expertise that they have for you because you doubt that they're going to give you the best advice. You see, we do the same thing with God. It's so easy to do the same thing with God. And yet God is the expert of you and he has given us the expertise in the word of God for you. 
not keeping it a mystery, unfolded for you. And yet God is the expert of you. And yet if you start to doubt God or you start to doubt God's faithfulness, if you start to doubt God's reliability, if you start to doubt God's love, if you start doubting God at all, then the next thing that you will do is you will go, to, you will go somewhere else for advice. Maybe you'll go to a friend and it's advice that only God can give. Maybe you'll go to your emotions because it, there was one time that they were reliable. Maybe you'll go to your past thoughts, which is the very thing that got you in that pattern to begin with. So we want to go to God as the expert. His expertise for us is the word of God and not casting doubts before him. So we'll go into our main passage this morning. I'll give you just a little bit of of background on this, it becomes so important to understanding this particular gospel writing in Luke 1. In Luke 1 through 4, basically, he talks about um, his, his reason for writing and all of these things. But I'll tell you kind of a storyline about Luke. It's super interesting for me. Uh, Luke's account, gospel account, is one of four. Luke himself was not an eyewitness to the events that happened in Jesus's life, ministry, death, and resurrection. He himself was not a witness to that. As a matter of fact, he was a medical doctor who was called to be a gospel writer. So there was this guy by the name of Theophilus, still a good name. I love saying that word. Theophilus. Theophilus funded Luke's efforts to go and get historical accounts. So Luke would go through, through a span of time, and he would talk to all the people who were there who saw all the events of Jesus and all the things that happened and make sure that the story was straight. So he would go around and he stopped doing the, the doctoring thing probably, and he was just being funded by Theophilus to put all of these accounts together, talking to the eyewitnesses. And what's amazing to me is that his, his account, although he was not an eyewitness, it is consistent with the other three Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and John, those accounts are consistent with Luke's account. So Luke was a medical doctor who didn't need to be a Gospel writer, but God inspired him to do it. And he stepped forward and did it. Let's read verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, Judea, excuse me, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in, in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time of the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Some of this stuff is so interesting to me, and I think it's be interesting to you if you're somebody who, who likes to, to read the Bible, or, want, or even if you're even curious about the Bible. Um, the person who's mentioned in verse 5 is, is a guy by the name of, of Herod the Great. He should have been named Herod not so great because he was a horrible leader. He was half Jewish, but he would use that as, the, as just being an authoritarian over the Jewish people. 
So he wanted to control everything. He himself had befriended the the evil Roman Empire. So he was kind of doing the the Romans work, but he was the half Jewish leader over the people. As a matter of fact, after Solomon's temple had been torn down and all that, he built up his own temple and he kind of like, he maxed this thing out and he made it look more Greek or excuse me, more more Roman than even Jewish. So he, he took it, he put it like an eagle in front of it. It was symbolism for the Roman Empire and he had corrupted the temple. So something that was supposed to be sacred before God and offering worship to God then became a really kind of a pagan institute, if you will, because of Herod the Great. As a matter of fact, one thing I think is also interesting about him particularly, he is the individual who's mentioned in Matthew 2 who's responsible for the killing of the infant babies. After he had heard word and he was fearful that the Messiah was to be born, he was fearful, so he went out and had all children to and under killed, but he missed one. All all male children, excuse me, killed except one, and that's Jesus. So this is the same evil person. This is the same person. You can even look outside of the Bible, in case you're a little skeptical even of the Bible. You can look outside of the Bible and see that he was a historical figure. Herod the Great. As a matter of fact, he's, he's on a line of, of a bunch of Herods. And he is, he is the one who's probably the most well-known. So the, he is being mentioned right here as a timestamp in verse 5. So Luke's telling us, okay, it was this, this span of time that it happened. And then it mentions in verse 5 that there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. This was very common that as a priest who uh, would then want to marry somebody in the line of Aaron. This is very common. So Zechariah would go out and he would look for somebody who was a virgin in the line of Aaron. This is just something that they did. This is very common. So now you see that both of them are together. It says that in Verse 6, they were observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. Uh, just so you know, that doesn't mean that they were sinless. It just means they were faithful. They were, they, they were faithful, not sinless. Okay, so that's what, that's what the Lord's telling us right here. And it says, but because Elizabeth was barren, they were both well along in years. So now, most likely, they got married at a young age. And now they're, they've kind of lived their life in just this span of life, and she's barren. She hasn't been able to have a child. Don't you think the seed of doubt would be cast over if she would ever have children again? And now, or excuse me, she would ever have children at all? And now they're well along in years. So in the time that biologically things start to break down, and now the thought of them actually having a, a child, uh, it's, just, it's just there's like a, a long dark shadow being cast over that and saying, no, that's, that's probably not uh, the dream for us. So now, as this continues, some of the things that are interesting, I, I love this stuff. I hope that you're interested in some of the details because I want to be true to the word as I'm true to you and true to the Lord at the same time. It says that Zechariah's division was on duty. This was set forth, this responsibility was set forth in 1 Chronicles 24, 1 through 6. So Zechariah is doing exactly what he should. There were thousands of priests, so they had to kind of pick and choose who would be in doing the, doing the temple work. And it was his time that God ordained that it was his time. And he was obeying, it was his, his time of service. And now, as this passage continues, what I just read to you, 
It says that they're burning incense, and it says, and when the time came of the burning of incense, came all the assembled, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. You see, the incense and the temple was a reminder for the people of God to pray. So they would burn incense inside the temple. And as people, out, as people outside of the temple, they would see the smoke going up and they would smell the smoke and it would remind them to pray because as the incense goes up, it, it, it was symbolic for them, as the, the incense would go up, up into the sky, up into the Lord, it would be the same as their prayers, that they would offer up prayers to God. So when the incense would burn and the smoke would go up, it would be a reminder for them to pray. And this was very common. So what Luke writes right here is very common that you would have experienced in first century Judaic life. Passage continues in verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Right? So get this. So he's doing his priestly duty. An angel of the Lord comes while he's right in the midst of his normal responsibilities and practices. That's, he's just doing the normal thing. So an angel kind of bloop, shows up standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. And he will be a joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, but he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. And many of the people of Israel will 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 he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord, in spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for him. I want us to, to see this and what I just read. Zechariah is in the middle of his normal responsibilities. And oftentimes, that's exactly what it is for us. If you're a follower of Jesus, oftentimes God doesn't speak to us in just some highlight reel. It isn't just some explosive thing, just some wow factor. Oftentimes, God speaks to us in the stillness, and just the stillness in a small voice. God speaks to us not in just the, the fireworks of life. Oftentimes, God speaks to us in the normal spiritual practices that he wants us to do. God speaks to us to his word. When we get into his word, we should expect to hear from God. When we kneel before God or we sit before God or however it is or stand before God and offer up prayers to God, we should expect to hear the voice of God back to us. When, when we confess to God, we should naturally feel this connection with God and a burden being lifted off of our shoulders, and it will be spiritually satisfying and emotionally satisfying if it's real. So that's what happens. And Zechariah has this moment, this encounter with an angel, and it says he's gripped with fear. We're going to see as this passage continues that this fear is not a healthy fear. This fear actually leads to doubt. But I love how, right in the midst of this, God speaks to him in just the normal situation that he would be in. This is very consistent biblically. God spoke to Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Nehemiah was a wine tester for, for a king. Like, he had, like, the best job. I'll sip this wine. A good day at work is I live. A bad day at work is I die. Like, literally, as a, as a cupbearer, they would literally sip the the they would sip the drinks or the wine of the king to see if it was poisoned. So if it was poisoned, uh, sorry, better make your plans. He's not coming home, right? 
But so that was his job. And God spoke to him in the normal activities of his life for him to go and inspire the people of God to build up the walls in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, you also, there's another amazing encounter when God spoke in just such a normal situation. And I believe this is found in 1 Samuel 16. This is when David was chosen as the next king. Now there was already a king, but he was being, he was being set up for the next king. And it was really cool how this played out. You should read it for yourself. It's a normal situation of life. There's, uh, there's Eli, who's David's dad. And yet Samuel comes up and Samuel goes, all right, Eli, um, one of your sons is going to become king. So Eli sets up all his sons and I'm sure they look good. They're all buff and all cleaned up and spiffed up and they're standing up all lined up. And, and Samuel goes through and, and, and Eli's like, <clears throat> what about him? He's, and he's like, not him. And he goes, well, what about it? not him? And, and not him and not him and not him. And then Samuel looks at, at, at Eli and he says, well, don't you have one more son? Don't you have one more? And he says, yeah, I do. But he's just, he's just tending the flock. And God called David from a normal situation to do something extraordinary. You see, and that's how God speaks. God's going to speak to you in more situations than what you're hearing from me right now. God's going to speak to you in the, in the normality of life. And it could just be a whisper. Don't miss it. But with this normality of life, what we also see with Zechariah is they prayed. There's, because of the, the wording here, it shows that they like prayed once. So this isn't like they've petitioned God for decades. It's like to their defense here, it seems like they prayed like one time. But why is it that, that he's surprised when God answers his prayer? Like, why, why are we surprised when God shows up in areas after we've prayed? So, I think one of the reasons why is this. Because there can be a difference between believing God can do it and believing God will do it for us. I think there, there can be a big difference right here between believing God can do it. Of course, God can do it. God can fix my finances. Of course, he can fix my finances. He can fix my marriage. Of course, he can. he's God. I'm not God. He's God. God can do anything. God can, God can fix my car. God can, God, if, if Jesus can go through and Jesus is God and heal somebody, I believe that God still heals people. I believe that. And yet, in the midst of this, we believe that God can do it oftentimes, but we, we also believe that he won't do it for us. Why is that? What's the difference between believing God can do it and believing God will do it? What I want to present to you is the difference is this, is the doubt in the middle. It's the doubt in the middle. And I think what causes that doubt, oftentimes, it's a lack of self-esteem. It's a lack of self-worth. And it's not knowing that, you're, that a Christian's identity is rooted in Jesus Christ. I think in those moments when we go from, I'm sure, of course, I believe God can do it. And, well, I don't think he's going to do it in my life. I think that the thing in the middle, the tension in the middle is doubt. Because we're doubting it because of past circumstances that we've been in. We're doubting it because we failed ourselves. We're doubting it because we made that diet plan. We said we're going to lose 20 pounds. Instead, we gained 10 pounds. We're doubting it because we believe that we're going to get on this Bible reading plan. I'm going to read the Bible in a year. And I'm going to do it. And nobody's going to stop me. Except you retired that morning and you stopped yourself. And there goes your Bible reading plan. You made it to Exodus. 
you know, and then it was all, and you were like a go-getter for a month, and you, you beat the odds of your past, and then boom, it was over. And I think that the thing that spurs the doubt is not God, it's us. It's us. Because of things that we've done, maybe things that we've said, or maybe things that people have done to us. So I want you to have a way out to cure those doubts today. I want you to not have that thing in the middle. I want you to have belief and power and faith to say, yes, I know God can do it. And yes, I believe he'll do it in my life. And I want to extinguish the fiery darts of doubt in the middle. That's what I want to do today. I want to share some scriptures in ways that connect with this. And honestly, it connects with what we've been learning in the last series, but it connects with today. This is what Psalm 84.11 says. For the Lord God is our sun and our shield. What does the sun do? It casts light. What does the sun do? It casts light and it provides vegetation of the earth. For the sun was symbolism in the Old Testament with the Jewish people. The sun was, was a sign of comfort because it's light out and the Lord gonna, is going to prepare and give us this vegetation and substance. We're going to be able to live. And it was a sign of provision from God when the sun came out. And it says a sun and a shield. The shield was a way of protection. We know what a shield is. It protects. So they just had this belief that, yes, God is the, he's the sun, he's the provider, and he's the protector of us. But, this verse continues, he gives grace and glory. The Lord will withhold no good thing from those who do what is right. The Lord will withhold no good thing from those who do what is right. Doesn't that chink away at the doubt in the middle of believing that God can do it and believing God will do it for us. Because if God's word says the Lord will withhold, no, he will withhold no good thing from those who do what is right. Shouldn't that cast a little light on the darkness of that doubt? I want to share this brilliant quote from Elizabeth Elliot. It is, it is so rich. And if if you know the storyline of Elizabeth Elliot, I'll, I'll just briefly tell you what it is. She and her husband, her first husband, Jim, were called to be missionaries. And when they were called to be missionaries, they were called to a very remote place. This is years ago, a very remote place with savage people. Jim and a couple other people went, went on ground there in, in the area where they were doing ministry. And Jim died. And he died. He died doing the Lord's work. But here's where the story just becomes amazing. I mean, that's, that, that's compelling that somebody would die, for, die sharing the gospel is a compelling message. Don't get me wrong. But I think something also is compelling. Even after her husband died, she herself went back. And, and the same people who were a part, of, a part of the original group went back and evangelized those warring tribes. And they no, no longer were warring people. They were loving people. They were Jesus people. So now, after you know what happened, and, and when she talks about severe mercies, she's felt severe mercies, greater than what I have, and probably greater than what you have. So let's read it together. God never withholds from, the, from his child that which his love and wisdom call good. Very consistent with Psalm 8411. God's refusals are always merciful. You've probably never thought that before, but it's true. Severe mercies at times, but mercies 
All the same, God never denies our heart's desire except to give us something better. To give us something better. So in those moments where you have this this doubt that's being cast over your life and you're starting to believe, I just don't know that God can do it. I just don't know because I prayed that one time and, and my prayer didn't turn out the way that I wanted. Maybe that was one of God's mercies to you that you didn't get what you wanted and yet it was a promise that God's gonna give you something better. What if that's true? Another psalm that corresponds with this is Psalm 710. And it echoes some of the same things. It says, God is my shield, saving those whose hearts are true and right. And the only person whose heart is saved is a heart that's surrendered to Jesus. A heart that has surrendered, surrendered their all, not just surrendered their past and their brokenness, but surrenders their all, surrenders their past, their present, and their future to Jesus Christ. Accepting the gospel message of hope and peace and accepting the fact that he died for you on the cross. And then in response to his death on the cross and his resurrection power that then overcame the death and uh, that overcame death and guilt and pain and shame, then as a response to that, we have to willingly Submit our lives to Jesus. That's the person who God is saving, whose heart is true and right. And God is the shield for that person. You may be in doubt and darkness, but if God is your Lord and Savior, he will be, with, he will be to you a son. You may be in, in doubt and darkness right now, you might. But if God is your Lord and Savior, he will be to you a son. He will be your provider. And he'll be the, the providing to you the light of understanding to guide and to direct you. That's what God is for his children. It's that very thing. And even, even knowing that about God extinguishes the fiery darts of doubt. Also, he will be to us a shield to secure us from the fiery darts of doubt. Promise from God. Now, I want to continue on and just share this really, really quickly, uh, just for your, your understanding. In this passage, right in, in verse 17, I believe it's verse 17. It says, he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. This was prophesied 400 years before. And the prophet Malachi, in Malachi 3.1, prophesied this. He said, see, I will send my messenger who will, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord that you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of his covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So 400 years before the birth of Jesus. 400 years before the birth of this child that's going to be, that's being prophesied right now. Malachi said, there's hope coming. There's a messenger that's coming. And the messenger is the very child that will be conceived out of Elizabeth's womb. Isn't that awesome? Verse 18. 
says this, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at the proper time. He didn't believe. When Zechariah asked this question, it says that what, what it's connecting is the fear that he first experienced with the angel. Now it's rendered itself to doubt. Now he is, he is doubting and he asks this doubting question. He says, how, right here in verse 18, he says, how can I be sure of this? In other words, he says, I need evidence. I need proof. I don't believe you, God. That's what he's saying. And what does God do? He's like, oh, you want proof? Okay, now you're mute. You want proof? I'm going to give you proof. You're not going to be able to talk. You were talking on your way in, probably talking while you're in there, but now you're mute. There's your proof. That was a kind of a strict or severe thing, but better than taking his life for sure. One of the things we see right here in this passage is Zechariah's biology got in the way of his theology. Zechariah's biology, he was like, well, how can I be sure of this? I mean, I'm old, uh, my wife's old, well, she's barren, obviously this isn't happening. Like, we tried, not happening, tried, not happening. Like, we're not having kids, there's going to be no babies, how, how can this happen? And he, he let his biology get in the way of his theology. And here's what I know about, about humankind. Oftentimes we let our history get in the way of our theology, We let our history and the things that we've done, or maybe the things that we've said, or what people have done to us, we let that then become a seed of doubt between believing God can do it and believing God will do it. So for him, it was his theology. For us, maybe it's our history. Verse 21, we're in the home stretch. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. He's like, what has taken him so long? He's been in there forever. He should be out by now. I'm going to find out why. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. Can you imagine that sight? When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord had done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. God showed up in a huge way. I have just a few things that I have kind of thought about and ways to apply this talk. And all these are going to be on the screen. And the first one is this. Doubts are transferable, but so is wonder. Doubts are transferable, but so is wonder. So if you work and you serve as a small group leader in DBC Kids, understand that you may have some insecurities, you may have some struggles, and please know that those are are transferable. So instead, you should celebrate the work of God in your life. The Arise small group leaders, same thing for you. Parents of children, same thing for you. Maybe grandparents of children, same thing for you. You may have your own little insecurities, but you should celebrate what God is doing in your life because when you celebrate it, what it does, is it just launches this reality of believing that God can do it and that God will do it. And instead of having the seed of doubt, it's just the seed of wonder and the curiosity and believing, wow, God is so much bigger than any doubts that I have. The second thing, 
is don't let your age determine your effectiveness. Don't let your age determine your effectiveness. They were well along in years. He was still doing his life's work. There is no retirement plan for a priest. Really, there was no retirement plan for, for those people back then. They worked and they worked and they served and they died. And that's what they did. And yet in, in America, we have such a tainted view of, of this and saying, well, once I retire, I get to spend the rest of my retirement on me. But how about we switch that and we say, I'm not going to let my age determine my effectiveness in my retirement. I'm going to actually leverage more time and more passion and more energy advancing the kingdom of God. How about that? So let's not let age determine your effectiveness. If you are young, don't let your age determine your effectiveness. That's the reason why in DBC Kids, we try and, we try and get kids serving other kids, even in DBC Kids, as early as we possibly can. The, the prerequisite is they have to be a follower of Jesus. And they go out and then they serve other kids. That's the reason why we cycle back and we have our students then become small group leaders in DBC Kids. That's the same reason why. Because we don't want their age to, to determine their effectiveness. We want to teach them service at an early age. That way, they'll replicate it for the rest of their life. And that way, they will know, and maybe we need to know, that we're not on earth to receive, but we're on earth to serve. Third thing. With your age comes wisdom. Don't waste it. You have, with your age, you have valuable things that you need to pass along to people like me. You have valuable things that you need to pass on to to other folks. If you've been married a while, you need to cycle back and talk to some of these new marrieds and say, man, how can I serve you? How can, we, how can we meet and have, have a meal and just talk about ways that we can serve you and help you in your marriage? Because we've made a blunder of mistakes. We've got a list a mile long, and we don't want you to do the same thing. And with that has come some wisdom, and we don't want to waste it. Instead, we want to impart that wisdom to someone else. Fourth thing. Our faith is informed by spiritual practices. This is the reason why we stress Bible study, prayer, community, confession, silence and solitude, walking in repentance, having somebody who we're accountable to. This is the reason why, because our faith is informed by spiritual practices. That's why. That's when we're going to hear God's still small voice in those situations. The fifth one. God's promises. God promises not to withhold any good thing from you. So let that shine a light on the darkness of your doubts. That's God's promises for you. And lastly, the shield of faith extinguishes the arrows of doubt. You see, if we're really looking for the good life, Jesus' best life for us, we're going to be faithfully serving. We're going to be generously giving. We're going to be continually repenting. That's what we're going to do. Because that is Jesus' best life for you. Now, I want to tell you a, a story and conclude my talk. A story that pertains to, to some of this. And it's a story of, of a border guard and, 
and a smuggler. A border guard had heard that somebody was smuggling something across the border. And the border guard was very curious. And, and so the border guard was prepared. And when, when the border guard saw this man with a wheelbarrow, with the wheelbarrow was empty and the wheelbarrow was going across the border. And the border guard was like, no, 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 you need to stop, sir. So he, he stops him and he, he looks and he's looking all around and he's like mm, scratching his head. He's like, I know he's smuggling something. So he looks all around there. He checks the tires. He does everything and he, he can't find anything. So he lets him go. Well, the next day, the guy comes through another wheelbarrow. It's like just the same thing. He looks at it, he scratches his head. It's like he is, he is smuggling something. Everybody knows he's smuggling something. What in the world is he smuggling? And it goes through and it's empty again. And the guy is just totally confused. And day after day after day, it's rinse and repeat. The same thing, the smuggler, the border guard, and, the, and he lets the guy go through. And after a while, the guy stopped coming through. And, but the border, border guard never forgot. He was, it was stuck in his head and he was like, I... That was a mystery to me. So then he actually sees the smuggler in a restaurant. And he looks at, he sees the smuggler and he's like, oh, I got to go talk to him. It's after the fact. So, so the border guard goes over to the smuggler and he says, hey, I know, I know without a shadow of a doubt, you were smuggling something. What was it? He says, oh, he says, well, I'll tell you. He's like, I have to know. He says, I was smuggling wheelbarrows. You see, the very thing that we need to extinguish the fiery darts of doubt are right in front of our eyes. Just like that wheelbarrow. We don't need to look beyond the normal. You just need to look into the things that press into God and he will reveal to you exactly what you need and when you need it. Can I pray for you? Lord Jesus, I just commission these great people to go out and do the things that they're being called to. Jesus, I I thank you for loving us, loving us so much that you didn't just make us and leave us, but yet you left the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers us to understand the word of God. The Holy Spirit then takes the scales off of our eyes so we're not blind anymore. Holy Spirit, please, right now, as these people are are about to be sent out to go do the work that they're being called to do, to go have the conversations they're being called to, maybe to to go out and lean into the Bible like they're being called to, God, I, I commission them in your name to go do the thing that you're calling them to. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would cast your light on any shadow of doubt that may rest in our minds and our hearts. We trust you, Jesus. Amen.